It was a first-year student in seminary. And by the way, this is not me. But it was a first-year student in seminary who was told by the dean that he should plan to preach a sermon in chapel the next day. Now, you know, when you're in, in seminary, you're being trained to preach. So you should be able to pull this off, you know. He had never preached a sermon before. He was nervous and afraid. He stayed up all night, and in the morning, he still didn't have a sermon. So he got up in the pulpit in chapel, looked out at his classmates, and said, Do you know what I'm going to say? And all of them shook their heads, No. He said, Neither do I. The service has ended. Go in peace. Well, the dean was not too happy with that, so... He went to him, he said, I'm going to give you another chance tomorrow, and you had better have a sermon. So again, he stayed up all night, comes to the morning, still doesn't have a sermon. So he gets up in the pulpit and chapel, and he says, do you know what I'm going to say? And some of the students said, mm-hmm. And some of the students said, uh, or no, no, all the students said Yes. He said, then there is no reason to tell you. The service has ended. Go in peace. Well, now the dean was angry, and he said, I'm going to give you one more chance. If you don't have a sermon tomorrow, you're going to be asked to leave the seminary. So again, you know what happened. No sermon. Gets up in the pulpit, and he says, "Um, do you know what I'm going to say? And this time, half the students said yes, and the other half said no. And he said, those who know, tell those who don't know. And then the service has ended, go in peace. Well, to his surprise, the dean came over to him, put his arm around him, and said, those who know, tell those who don't know. Today, the gospel has been proclaimed. He actually got it right. How about that? Well, I tell you that story as a reminder that one of the main reasons that we gather as God's people is because he's given us a message and there are people who don't know. And so those who know are to tell those who don't know, right? That's you and me. And if you just pause to think how many people in our fair city of Xenia, how many people in Greene County and beyond do not know the Lord? The gospel is proclaimed through his people. Well, that's really what's going on in Isaiah chapter 8, believe it or not. There's a lot of uh, historical background here. There's a lot of um, backdrop that we have to grasp. But for a moment, I want to... Uh, review our study of Isaiah. Where have we been? Here we are. We're about ready to plunge into chapter 8, but I just want to take a moment and remind you where have we been. Uh, We just finished chapter 7, looking at the well-known messianic sign of Isaiah 7.14. But um, if you remember back when we started, it actually started with Isaiah 55. Anybody remember that? I've tried to you know, shake it up a little bit. Instead of starting in chapter 1, we started with chapter 55 as an introduction, and we looked at the gospel according to Isaiah. Well, then we went back to chapter 1. 
And chapter 1 was a call to hear. And if you remember in chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, you know, Isaiah started off by saying, you know, uh, Judah, the people of Israel, but primarily the southern kingdom of Judah, you need to hear what God is saying. Come, let us reason together. Chapter 1, verse 18. Though your sins are red like crimson, they will be turned to white like snow. He went on from there to talk about the, re- the redemption of Zion in chapter 1, verse 21, through chapter 2, verse 5. The next was about the day of the Lord and the reminder that there is coming a day when God's going to make everything right. And really that gives us hope because we look around at the world at times and think, yeah, everything's kind of out of kilter here and why is this happening? Well, God's going to make it right someday. And the way he's going to do that is through the branch, the shoot out of the stump of David. And it's kind of a strange picture for us, you know, to think about a symbol of something growing out of a stump or a root. But that's how the Messiah, one of the ways he's, he's described as the branch. And then we came to chapter 5, the song of the vineyard. And talked about how the Lord had a vineyard and how he, he took special care of that vineyard. And it was a symbol of his care for his people Israel and Judah particularly, and yet how there was no fruit. And so we were reminded we're to be looking into our own lives to see, is there fruit coming out? And then we came to that amazing passage in chapter 6, the throne room. And it was kind of like Isaiah said, no, wait a minute, I'm going to replay the tape or I'm going to go back to the beginning. This is how I was called to the ministry. And this is the vision that God gave me. And And this is what I got to see. And he described this amazing picture of God sitting on the throne, this vision that he was given. And he he was searching for words to describe the the seraphim uh, with these creatures with three sets of wings and, and crying out constantly, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That led us to chapter 7, the sign of the virgin birth. And the historical backdrop of chapter 7 continues into chapter 8, where we are today, with King Ahaz. Now remember, Ahaz was this wicked king, and he had no time for God, and he worshipped idols, and he even sacrificed his own children. He was very wicked and, and just an evil king, perhaps the worst king that Judah ever had. And yet it was to him, and at his timing, that God gave through Isaiah this amazing promise that someday a virgin would give birth to a son whose name would be called Emmanuel. What's the title of today's message? It's Emmanuel, God with us. And you might think, well, well Pastor, wasn't that last, last chapter, chapter 7, verse 14? Well, the virgin birth... Emmanuel was introduced, but it's carried now over into chapter 8, this same title. And so today we continue our study with Emmanuel, God with us. And it is connected to chapter 7, verse 14, 
but it adds some more insight for us today. Did you notice the two references to Emmanuel when we read? Well, one was quite obvious. At the end of verse 8, it says, Your land, O Emmanuel. But I'm sure you picked up also at the end of verse 10, it doesn't actually say Emmanuel, but in English it says, For God is with us. But those are the exact same Hebrew words. In fact, it's two words, Umanu El, with us God. By the way, El, what's that? E-L in Hebrew, that means the strong one. And it became the most basic name for God. In fact, it was a name used among other peoples as well. So everyone knew the strong one, El, as God. But then his name was often used in the plural form, Elohim, which could be translated gods, or sometimes was considered a, a plural of majesty, as some way that some scholars put it. Even um, in the, the first chapter of the Bible in Genesis, Elohim said, let us go down. Let us make man in our own image. And so within Elohim, that plurality within the unity, and unity within the plurality, is the idea of, of the Trinity in God's name. Immanuel, God with us, is coming through here in this passage as a promise and an encouragement to us. And by the way, just a note on the spelling of Emmanuel. This comes up quite often. Have you noticed, at least in a lot of Bible translations, Emmanuel in Isaiah is spelled with an I, right? Then when you come over to the New Testament in Matthew 1.23, at least in the King James Version, it's spelled with a E. And we just sang Emmanuel. And now we're reading Emmanuel. Well, the only, the only difference is when you take the Hebrew and try to put it into English, it comes out Emmanuel with an I. But in the New Testament, it goes from Hebrew to Greek, and so it comes out with an E. It's kind of like, have you seen in the King James Version, Isaiah in the Old Testament and Isaiah in the New Testament? Some of the newer translations have kind of smoothed that out to make it the same in both. But uh, all this to say, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, they're both correct, okay? Just two different ways because of the way language works. So what about Isaiah chapter 8? If you're looking at your Bible, there might even be a title that says the coming Assyrian invasion. And remember in the last chapter, just for a moment, here's Ahaz, and he's all upset because Syria and Israel are threatening his nation of Judah. Now don't get Syria and Assyria confused. I remember as a young person going, uh, what? <laughs> Syria? Assyria? They almost sound the same, don't they? But those are two different countries. And then Syria was just directly to the northern boundary of Israel, the northern part, the northern kingdom. But Assyria was about 700 miles away, and Nineveh was the capital. And Assyria was known as a very wicked nation, a very crude and 
and horrible people as far as how they treated others, how they tortured their prisoners and things like that. And so we've got to keep those two in mind. But just remember what happened in chapter 7. Ahaz is, weir- is, is, is frightened and he's, he's wearying himself about the northern kingdom, Israel, and Syria. And so he wants to make friends with Assyria. They, they were worried about Assyria and they wanted uh, Ahaz and Judah to join them against Assyria. But instead, he thought, I'm going to make uh, an alliance with Assyria. The most foolish thing that he could have thought of. That's when Isaiah said to him, don't do it. God says, don't do that. Just trust me. Don't worry about Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. And certainly don't connect yourself with the ungodly, wicked Assyria. But Ahaz wouldn't listen. It was Yahweh revealing himself through Isaiah, that God is with us. And it was Yahweh God, the true God, saying to Ahaz, just trust me, just believe me. And when he wouldn't listen, he said, well, I'm going to say this to the whole house of David. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, with us God. What the Lord is saying to you today is what he was saying to his people back then. If you will simply believe me, I will be with you. You hear that? That's what the Lord is saying to you today. If you will simply believe me, I will be with you. Now remember when Jesus was born, I don't believe Mary and Joseph called him Emmanuel, I don't think they did that. When they were told his name will be called Emmanuel, that was a symbol and a title that they knew he was going to be special. By the way, you ever stop and think, why do we call Jesus, Jesus? His Hebrew name would be Yeshua or Yehoshua. The equivalent of Jesus really is Joshua in the Old Testament. Did you know that? What if we always called Jesus Joshua? Wouldn't that be a little confusing? How do we get Jesus? Out of the Greek New Testament, Jesus. Jesus, transcribed into English, became Jesus. But it means Joshua. Yahweh saves. So, it's, it's, to me, it's very interesting to see how all these kind of languages come together. And we jump around between Hebrew and Greek and English and try to pronounce these names. But uh, we, we want to know the Lord in deeper ways. And Jesus is Emmanuel because he promises to be with us. Well, here's uh, the outline. We're going to try to work our way through Isaiah 8 here. So if you're looking with me at Isaiah chapter 8... The first part is Emmanuel is with us even when he chastens us. Secondly, Emmanuel is with us when we honor him. And thirdly, Emmanuel is with us when we stand upon his word. This is what Isaiah was getting across to the people. So first of all, Emmanuel is with us even when he chastens us. So look with me again, if you would, 
Isaiah chapter 8, we'll look at verses 1 and 2 for a moment. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah to attest for me. Yahweh announces here, here comes an additional prophecy. Now what was the previous prophecy? It was Isaiah 7.14, the virgin birth. So don't miss that. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. But now the Lord says, now I'm going to give you another prophecy. I want you to pay attention. And he says, Isaiah, I want you to get a writing tablet. Now, scholars kind of go back and forth whether uh, this was uh, a piece of paper that we would think of uh, or possibly a, a big clay tablet. It seems to be something that would be like a, a sign that would be put up uh, for public reading. He says, take a large tablet and write on it with common characters. It literally says, write on it in Hebrew. And the, what he was to write was, belonging to Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Now I'm sure you've probably read and heard this was... Uh, going to be the name of Isaiah's second son. But it's this strange name that means the spoil speeds or the prey hastens. Or you could put it quick to the plunder and swift to the spoil. It's, it's kind of like repeating the same idea in two different ways. But it's basically what soldiers would say as they're overrunning a country and they're going to take the spoils of the people that they're conquering. Hurry up and get all the get all you can get. Hurry up and get all the money and all the treasures. Hurry to the treasure. We're going to we're going to take the everything that belongs to these people. That's what invading soldiers say. And God says to Isaiah, "Name your son quick to the spoil, hasten to the prey." Okay? In, in some terms like that. You can interchange all these different words, of course. What a strange thing to say, don't you think? Isn't it a strange thing to say, name your son, hurry up to the treasure? Well, it was to be a sign, wasn't it? And you notice immediately what does Isaiah do in verse 2? He gets witnesses that he says, I want to get some reliable witnesses that I'm writing this down before it happens. And so he gets Uriah the priest and Zechariah. We don't know a lot about them other than they were reliable witnesses that would hold up in a court of law perhaps. And then we move right to verse 3 and it says, And I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Sure makes it sound simple, doesn't it? I think that takes about nine months for that, all that to happen. But anyway... You know, he says in very just simple terms, this prophecy was given before the son was even thought about, before he was conceived, and certainly before he was born. And he goes on to say, Then the Lord said to me, Call his name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And again, we already know what that means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Hurry up and get the treasure. In other words, 
there's an invading army coming and this is going to be what they're saying. It could not be good news to anybody who would hear this. Can you imagine if you were one of the people living in Judah at that time and a prophet put up something that says, before long, the enemy's going to be coming raiding your house. That's basically what he's saying. The enemy's going to come and take all your belongings. Everything that you own is going to be swept away before long. Would you be encouraged by that? Of course not. You'd, you'd hear this, and you'd, this is doom and gloom. This is, I don't, I don't, why are you telling us this? And especially when they were looking around, they're just coming off a time of great prosperity under uh, King Uzziah, who was king for many, many years. Uh, it was hard for them to see, but politically, everything was starting to come apart. And notice the next thing that... Uh, that is said in verse 4, but before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Now wait a minute. Damascus, that's up in Syria, right? And uh, Samaria, that's the northern kingdom. And, and Isaiah's talking to the southern kingdom. And so the temptation would be, oh, well, Assyria's going to bother them and that's not us, so that's encouraging a little bit, maybe. That's, that's better news than what we first thought. But he doesn't stop there. Notice what he says in verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people, Judah, has refused the waters of Shaloah that flow gently, and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold... The Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. So what is he saying? First of all, Assyria is going to take care of the two guys that, that you're bothered. The king of Assyria is Rezin. The king of Israel is Pekah, son of Remaliah. Assyria is going to take those guys in a very short time. In fact, before your child can say mama or dada, that's going to happen. And you know what happened? In fact, two years later, Assyria took out those cities. Now, they didn't carry all of them away quite yet, but Assyria began uh, their um, taking over the country. And of course, and that would have been about 732 by 10 years later, all of the northern kingdom of Israel fell and was carried away. Bad news. Bad news for the northern kingdom. Bad news for Syria. But again, Ahaz, he's in the southern kingdom. He's concerned about himself only. And, and all he wants is deliverance. But Isaiah says, uh-uh-uh, no. Don't, 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 uh, don't rejoice over the fact that Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel are going down, these two guys that have been bothering you, these two kings, because you know what's going to happen? Your land is going to be flooded. Like when the Euphrates River overflows its uh, banks, Assyria is going to flow into your country like an overflowing river, and the water is going to go 
right up to your neck. That's what he says. Notice verse 8. It says, And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Now, you know, when you first read this, you really kind of have to meditate on this and think, what, what's being said here? Because of Judah's refusal to trust Yahweh, God is saying, I'm going to allow Assyria not only to take out Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, but I'm going to allow Assyria to sweep into Judah too. It's going to take some time, but it happened. You know how long it took? About 30 years. When this prophecy was given, it was 734 B.C. Two years later, Damascus and Samaria fell in 732. In 701, about 30 years later, Assyria would sweep through Judah and wipe out just about everything except Jerusalem. Jerusalem was spared. And remember, Jerusalem's way up on a mountain, and it's a fortress city. But, but many cities in Judah were overtaken and probably some people heard Mahar Shalal Hashbaz as the enemy came through the land. So the Lord compares trusting him versus trusting a foreign nation to a gentle stream versus a raging river. Did you catch that? Shiloh was the water supply. It was a gentle stream in Jerusalem. And that's where they got their water. And the Lord says, I'm just like this gentle stream. You just trust me. But you're not going to trust me? Then I'm going to let an overflowing river. And you know, in the Old Testament, almost every time when it says the river with a capital R, it is the what river? Euphrates River. Which, by the way, was supposed to be the original boundary of Israel when God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you all this land, all the land to the Euphrates River, which they never even yet have occupied. Someday, the day is coming when they will. So trusting Assyria as a friendly alliance is like being in the middle of the Euphrates River at flood stage. That's what God was saying. And the water's going to come up to your neck. You're not going to drown but it's going to be real close. That's what he says. And then he says something to Assyria and all the nations. And, and you, you notice that last part where he says, the enemy's going to come in, spread its wings over your land, oh, Emmanuel, oh, God with us. That almost doesn't seem to fit, does it? The enemy's going to come and take over, oh, Emmanuel. But wait a minute, God is still there. And notice what he says in verses 9 and 10. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For, here it is again, Emmanuel, God, is with us. He's obviously talking now to the foreign nations. He's talking to Assyria. He's talking to what would later on be Babylon. It would be Babylon that would eventually carry away Judah in 586, right? In the Babylonian captivity. But first, in this era, Assyria is the problem. And so here's this poetic warning to Assyria and all unbelieving nations. I like how uh, um, 
the Christian Standard translation puts it. In verse 9 it says, Band together, peoples, and be broken. Pay attention, all you distant lands. Prepare for war and be broken. Prepare for war and be broken. It goes on to say in verse 10, Devise a plan. It will fail. Make a prediction. It will not happen. Why? For God is with us. I think that translation is helpful. But it's, it's saying the same things that, this, that these words are saying and that your scriptures are saying. It's just sometimes a little bit of uh, shades of meaning help us. But the Lord was warning other nations, don't get proud, don't get arrogant, just because I'm letting you invade Syria and Israel and eventually Judah, and I'm allowing you to be the instrument in my hand to chasten my people. Don't be proud. You notice what he's saying in these first ten verses? Emmanuel is with us even when he chastens us. Do you like chastening? Anybody want to sign up for chastening? What's chastening? It's like when my parents would spank me. I remember my mother breaking, uh, what were those, uh, yardsticks. She'd spank me with a yardstick. It didn't hurt that much, really. <laughs> but, uh, but she'd spank me with a yardstick. Am I allowed to say spanking nowadays? I don't know why. You can't, you can't do that anymore, right? In our culture. But I survived it. My mom broke a lot of yardsticks over my hind end. My dad only spanked me like twice. And I never wanted to have that happen again. But uh, chastening is getting discipline. Okay, so maybe spanking is the wrong word. Maybe it's a timeout or whatever else people parents are allowed to do these days, right? But, um, you know, there's got to be discipline of some kind. And, and spanking isn't always the answer either. But there's got to be discipline. And, you know, God brings discipline into our lives in different ways. If we say to God, you know, God, I know I'm sinning, and I'm going to do it anyway. You are playing with fire. You realize that? If you say to God, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. If you're a believer, guess what? God is coming after you with a yardstick. And he's going to take you back. And guess what? If he doesn't come after you, then you're not one of his. People that say, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I don't care what God says. And if God doesn't come after them, then they don't belong to God. And that's even worse. You ever think about that? Do you like chastening? I don't. It's unpleasant. But it's loving. And sometimes God allows people, circumstances, maybe illness. You know, 1 Corinthians 11, about the communion table. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Why? Because they refuse to confess their sin. Lives can even be cut short. There's Christians who say, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm, I know it's wrong, and I'm going to do it anyway. You are playing with fire. God will not let you get away with it. I hope there's no one in that category today. Keep short accounts with the Lord. Oh, Lord, I want to, I want to, I want to confess. I want to make sure my heart is right with you. Because I want you to know, first of all, 
even when God chastens us, he is Emmanuel. He's with us. Secondly, Emmanuel is with us when we honor him. And that's what he says in these next few verses. Notice verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, this is Yahweh Sebaoth, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Now the idea of chastening kind of continues through this, but the main thing coming through these verses, verses 11 to 15, is that Yahweh is saying to Isaiah, if you honor me, I'm going to honor you. Don't listen to what the people are saying. You notice Isaiah says in verse 11, the Lord spoke to me with his strong hand. That's an anthropomorphism, right? He didn't really feel God's personal, physical hand, but it was like God was putting his hand on his shoulder and saying, Isaiah, I want you to get this. I'm warning you. And don't go along with what the people are saying. Don't call conspiracy what the people are calling conspiracy. You know, here uh, during this situation, Isaiah is saying, people wake up, Assyria is going to come and invade our land. Now, it didn't happen for 30 years. But in two years, they invaded the northern part, and they could see, ooh, that's what happens when you turn away from God. Now they're saying, we don't like what you're saying, Isaiah. We don't like your message. We don't want to hear about God allowing this ungodly nation to come and chasten us. And so we're going to call it a conspiracy. And God says to Isaiah, don't listen to what they say. Don't fear what they fear. And I underline in my Bible, verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. I would encourage you to underline, if not in your Bible, at least in your mind, Yahweh Sabaoth, he is the, the God of all armies, armies that could never be defeated. And you know what those armies are? They're an innumerable number. Is that a phrase? I think I messed that up. It's innumerable angel spirit beings that are at his disposal to do his bidding you can't number them when jesus was on the cross he said i could call 12 legions of angels and come and take me off here this god the god whose army could never be defeated says you fear me you dread me you reverence me and i will bless you you honor me, and I will honor you. He goes on to say, I'll either be your sanctuary or a stone of offense. What's a sanctuary? A sanctuary is a, is a safe place. It's a picture that God is a, the safe place to run to, a fortress. How many times David wrote that in the Psalms? God is my high tower. He's my fortress. He's my safe place. 
But he says to Isaiah, I'll either be your sanctuary or I'll be a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling. That verse gets quoted in the New Testament quite a bit. Romans 9.33, for instance. 1 Peter 2. Um, that passage comes up about the, the stone of stumbling and rock of offense. And so many are going to stumble upon it. Many are, fall, are going to fall and be broken. Those who reject the Lord will suffer the consequences. That's what he's saying. And that leads me to my last thought. We said, first of all, Emmanuel is with us even when he chastens us. And he put a lot of emphasis on that. And then secondly, Emmanuel is with us when we honor him. But this last point, I want you to get this. Emmanuel is with us when we stand upon his word. Now there's a couple verses here that are um, notable, that have been preached upon and, and pointed out at different times. Notice verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now, I'm going to stop there, but it really continues into chapter 9. So next time, we're going to have to kind of pull the end of chapter 8 into chapter 9, because it's talking about the gloom and doom of darkness of those who turn away from the Lord. But here's the verse that I wanted you to get, verse 20. And I like how the King James says, to the law and to the testimony. Have you ever heard that? To the law and to the testimony. It's like a, a word of charge. It's, a, it's a, a mantra. It's a word that you would put on, the, on a banner. To the law and to the testimony. In other words, Turn to the Word of God. Stand upon God's Word. Study His Word. Memorize it. Preach it. Live it. That's what he's saying. To the law and to the testimony. It's the describing the Word of God that's been given to us. And it helps us, it helps us to know this is what God expects. I've given you the instruction book. Read it. God gave his word to Isaiah as a sign to Israel. He put it a kind of an opposite in verse 16. Verse 20 and verse 16 are, are saying almost identically the same things. First he says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching. And then in verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. Think about for a moment what that's talking about. Where it says teaching or law, that's emphasizing obedience. That's all the commands of the Bible. The Ten Commandments would be the greatest example, but you know there's the great commandment in Matthew 22 that Jesus summarized the law. And so when he says to the law, he's talking about to the teaching, to that which emphasizes obedience. And you can see how these, uh, 
these words are almost interchangeable because if teaching or law emphasizes obedience, the word testimony would coincide with doctrine pointing to the truths to believe. And so the things that God commands, you need to know that, and the truths that God gives, the commands that he says what to do, and the truths or promises that he gives, we need both of them to the law, to the testimony, to the word of God. Pay attention to the word of God. And here, you know, Isaiah's giving the word to King Ahaz, and he's going, hmm, no. No, I don't want to sign. No. I don't want to hear what God says. No. I want to figure this out myself. Why? Because he was worshiping other gods. I'm going to make an alliance with Assyria. I think that's a good idea. And God says, that's a bad idea. They're going to come and invade your land and take everything you've got. No, I'm going to do what I want to do. When you do that, watch out. That's what Ahaz was doing. And he's responsible for all those people. And again, did God do it that day? No. It took 30 years. But he did what he said he was going to do. He says here, Behold, in verse 18, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. Who were the children? Who's, who's Isaiah's children? Shear Yashub, a remnant shall return, and Meir shall Ahashbaz, quick to the treasures. Faith and judgment. And Isaiah says, the children the Lord has given me are signs. They are signposts. They are miracle messages to Israel. And you notice he includes Israel here. He says the house of Jacob, not just the house of Judah, not just the house of David. He opens up this message and kind of calls out to his brethren to the north. You guys need to wake up. You've got only two years before this is going to happen. It's going to take 30 years before Judah gets overrun. But even so, I remember when I was a young person hearing about uh, fortune tellers and psychic friends. You ever hear anything like that? Anybody remember Jean Dixon? Anybody remember? This was a lady who would predict the future. And every, you know, every year around New Year's time, uh, she would come out with all kinds of predictions and everything. I, I know this dates me a lot, but <clears throat> a lot of you are right there with me anyway. So, <clears throat> but, uh, but, you know, Jean Dixon would come out with all these things, and she would only be right maybe half the time. And the things that she was right about were things that everybody already knew. You know, things like, well, the economy is going to grow a little bit, or, you know, there's going to be more inflation, or, or uh, you know, Russia's going to bother some Eastern European country or something like that. I could have guessed all those things and got them right, you know? Anybody could. It's like giving the weather in Florida. I could be a weatherman in Florida. You know, tomorrow it's going to be 95. The day after that it's going to be 95. In the next three months it's going to be 95. I figured that out while I was living there. But, but you know, you don't have to be a prognosticator. You don't have to be a prophet to know that only God has the truth but there's all these people that are buying into astrology and psychic friends and, and seeking answers in different ways. And that's what he's saying here in verse 19. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers. Remember the, the uh, widow of Endor back in 
1 Samuel 28, um, trying to do what Saul wanted to do, to bring, bring up Samuel from the dead. He says, don't, don't do this. Why, why would people do that? He says, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And what does he say in verse 20? To the teaching and to the testimony, turn to the word of God. These last few verses basically say, if you don't turn to the word, you're going to be in complete darkness and distress. Well, I've got to wrap this up. We've said that Emmanuel is with us even when he chastens us. Did you recognize that? Does God need to chasten you for some reason today? I hope not. The way to avoid that is to get on your knees and say, Lord, I confess. Here's the things in my heart that I need to say. Secondly, Emmanuel is with us when we honor him. We put him first. He's going to bless us. And thirdly, Emmanuel is with us when we stand upon his word. We are taking our trek through Isaiah. And the more I study Isaiah, the more relevant I find it. You know? Is it hard? Yeah, there's hard parts in there. But there's treasures to be found in it. And I encourage you to study and read it. Here's some principles from the prophet. Number one, the Lord chastens us when we disobey in order to draw us back to obedience. Did you get that? That's one of the things I wanted to get across today. It's not pleasant, but it's loving. Secondly, when we honor the Lord with our choices, our time, our money, our attitudes, our words, our actions, then He is going to honor us with a special confidence of His presence. Would you like that? Would you like to recognize the Lord is with you? He will help you as you walk in obedience. And then finally, the Word of God is so essential to knowing God's will and what He expects us to do. May our mantra for 2022 be to the law and to the testimony. Let us stick to the Word of God because that is where the truth will be found. Keep studying. Keep seeking the Lord. And He's going to bless us together. And all God's people said, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, may this time in your word reap spiritual fruit in my own life, in all of our lives, as a church family, as families and individuals. May we seek your face and realize that you are with us right now. Help us to recognize Emmanuel this week. God is with us as we ride in our cars, as we sleep in our beds, as we go to work, as we go to the market. So we walk down the street, whatever we're doing, to know that you are with us and you will be with us and you'll carry us all the way to heaven and help us to trust you every moment. And I just pray, Lord, that others would see Jesus in us. And so as we close out our time in a few moments, may your name be magnified and may our faith in you grow. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.